With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, y'all. What's up? Welcome back. I um should tell you guys that I haven't been at this house very long today, and I'm already annoying Torella so very much. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready for her to get the fuck out of here, but <laughs> that's hurtful. Well, I didn't make you be the way that you are. I guess that's true. <laughs> but we have a lot of recording to do, so I'll just swallow it and yep. just oh. deal grin and bear it now won't yep. i you sure will because <laughs> lord knows i'm not going to get any less annoying no that's true you're right i need to just deal with it <laughs> let's get let's go ahead and get a get on it shall okay. we so today uh we are covering the backpacker murders ivan Milat, son of a bitch yeah he's a real cheese dick real hate him really oh oh <laughs> I real hate him. <laughs> um, however, I do want to thank Olivia and I, I just am not sure if I'm pronouncing her name right. <laughs> Vicelio, and I feel like you've told me how to say it. I'm sorry. For researching this case, uh, she researched and wrote it. So thank you, girl. Girl, you're the best. Hey, girl, thanks. And Shannon McGreevy and Victoria Peterson for suggesting it on the case suggestion form. Yay. Woohoo. I'm still being annoying. <laughs> if looks could kill guys. I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. We also wanted to let you know that we do have merch available on our website. Tori was today years old when she figured out where it is. Yes, I was. And I procured my Sloppy Joe mm. today. We, while watching a documentary about this case, we found out that in Australia, and if they're our Australians that are listening right now, and I've gotten this wrong, please, please don't hate me for this, but I Googled it and everything on the internet is true. Yeah. That they call um, hoodies or like, I don't know, um, like baggy t-shirt or uh, baggy sweatshirts, excuse me. They call them Sloppy Joes and I love it. Yeah. So Tori got her own Sloppy Joe. <clears throat> sure did. If I'm feeling fancy, I'll call it my Sloppy Joseph. Oh, sure. Yeah. So um, we had some messages asking about merch and things for like Christmas presents for people so just putting it out there you can go to our website killerqueenspodcast.com you drop down shop in the menu and click on merch and then it'll redirect you to the website where we have all our merch through and then you can like see all the stuff on there um and if you click shop you can get the co-host for a day and stuff like that on there but just so you know there is stuff available if uh you got a KQ lover in your life or if you yourself is is a kq lover hmm. that's wrong yeah so <laughs> <laughs> okay enough business let's get into today's case 
In the 80s and 90s, Sydney, Australia was the hot spot for young travelers to backpack around the beautiful landscape, and hitchhiking was very commonplace then. Backpackers from all over the world would go to meet up with other backpackers in hostels. Or hostels. I know, that's what they said in the documentary. Because they sound much better than we do. That were popular in the area. During the same time frame, there had been a string of disappearances of young tourists who had come to the area in hopes of creating lasting memories with other adventurous friends who also had the travel bug. In this case, we'll examine what are referred to as the backpacker murders, vicious killings at the hands of a violent psychopath, taking advantage of young travelers who believed they were accepting a ride from a good Samaritan in a safe area. At the end of 1991, Joanne Walters and Caroline Clark, both 22-year-old British women, met at King's Cross Backpackers Hostel and instantly became friends. They shared a flat together, backpacked around the area together, and took jobs picking fruit to sustain themselves during their travels. In April of 1992, they left Sydney with plans to travel further south. Before leaving, one of the girls traded her tent for another tent that, I guess it was a guy that they'd met maybe at the hostel? They traded tents. So the the tent that the guy gave them had a hole in it. He had accidentally, with a a knife. Yeah, like a fruit picking knife. Yes. Because they were all there on like, I think they were doing one of those like work abroad situations. We looked looked into those. Yeah, a long time ago. So it's like, yeah, you could go somewhere else and like pick fruit or whatever. And we're so adventurous that we never did it. (laughs) Well, who has money for that? Like you apparently don't have to have any. Well, you got to get yourself there, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And I was like, oh, I have to buy a plane ticket. I'm out. (laughs) I don't. What's a savings? Yeah. What do you want me to walk into a bank and say, excuse me, do I have an account here? (laughs) So they he had his, you know, fruit knife or whatever. And I guess he accidentally punched a hole in the tent but he covered it with an address label so they go on they trade tents or whatever and then joanne and caroline leave and after that nobody ever heard from them again there was no activity on their bank accounts and their families reported them missing and got the media involved in hopes that it would help locate them With the help of the media attention for Joanne and Caroline, people started linking together the stories of several backpackers that had gone missing in recent years. It was becoming an all-too-familiar story in the headlines. So that being said, let's go back to 1989. Sweet. Let's do it. Yeah. Time travel, bitches. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) In December 1989, a young teenage couple, Deborah Everest and James Gibson, both 19 years old, set out to travel to Sydney to attend an alternative bush festival called Confest and meet up with their friends who had gone ahead of them. Deborah's father had been gravely ill at the time and died a short time after, and when James invited her to the festival with him, her mother Pat said that Deborah had said, I don't think I'll bother. Knowing what a toll helping care for her sick father had taken on her, Pat urged her to go, saying she thought thought a break would do Deborah good. She now cites this as the biggest mistake of her life. Shortly after arriving in Sydney, Deborah had phoned her mother and sounded upbeat, reporting she was having a good time and that she'd be home soon. After going a week without being seen or heard from, their parents reported them missing. James and Deborah were never seen alive again. It's also, okay, we should probably talk about the documentary a little bit. I don't remember the exact name of it. It's like, I think it's Ivan Malat, The Backpacker Murders. 
but it's on YouTube and it's like a little, it's almost an hour and a half long, but we'll link to it in the show notes. But I thought it was really well done. I I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, they they talked to pretty much, they talked to everybody's parents, didn't they? They did. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, they really got, and they talked to some of the Malat family members. They talked to lawyers. They talked to everybody involved in the case. So it was, it was really, I thought, well done. It was really in-depth, but... And lawyers are called solicitors there? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And getting the parents' perspective as the stories go on was really emotional. Like, uh, we'll get into it, I guess. But it was just, it was just really, really well done. So if you have not watched that yet, it, I thought it was great. Yes. As far as well done. Sad story. You'll say what the fuck so many times you will lose count. Or I did. Simone Schmidl went by the nickname Simmy and was described by loved ones as outgoing, adventurous, and admirable. She was a 21-year-old commercial assistant from Germany who had traveled to Australia while on holiday. She was traveling with her friend Jeanette Mueller at first, but then she decided to go off on her own despite her friend's warnings that it wouldn't be safe and her family asking her not to travel alone. Simone felt comfortable hitchhiking because she carried a knife and had read in a tourist book that all Australians were friendly. She was leaving Sydney to travel to Melbourne on January 20th, 1991. She had plans to meet her mother at the airport four days later, where they would then travel together for six weeks before flying back home to Germany together. But Simone never made it to the airport. Her mother had been looking forward to six weeks of quality time traveling with her daughter, but instead she reported Simone as missing and spent those six weeks looking for any sign of her. When she returned home, Jeanette was flown in and gave a press conference about Simone's disappearance. She stated that Simone would not have been careful who she hitchhiked with. She just wanted to get to Melbourne as quickly as possible to meet her mother. We still have hope, but it's running out. It's too long without hearing anything. In February of 1991, a camera and backpack were found in Galston Gorge. They were later identified as belonging to James Gibson. 21-year-old Gabor Nigebauer and 20-year-old Anya Habshid, a German couple, left the King's Cross Backpacker Hostel in Sydney on Boxing Day, which is the day after Christmas, in 1991, with plans to backpack to Darwin and then return to Munich a month later, but their families never saw or heard from them again. Not everyone who encountered this monster would seem to vanish into thin air, however. In early 1990, 24-year-old Paul Onions traveled to Sydney from Birmingham, England, seeking a change of pace and some adventure after serving in the Royal Navy. On January 25, 1990, Paul had been attempting to find some odd work to do to pay for his travel expenses in New South Wales when a man who introduced himself as Bill offered to give him a ride. Paul described the man as friendly, making polite conversation as he drove Paul to a fruit-picking job. Upon approaching the turnoff for the Belanglo Forest, the man said he needed to pull over to get some cassette tape so they could listen to music from underneath the seat. Then he used the excuse that he was getting outside of the radio signal, so he needed to find some cassette tapes. He's like, I can't drive without, you know, music. Should we pause here and explain what cassette tapes are? I think that wouldn't be a bad idea. There are some who may not know what cassette tapes are. There are some that may have never heard the term or seen one in a museum. <laughs> yeah, which is the only place you can pretty much find them now because try and get 
one of those auxiliary plug cassette tape things at Walgreens <laughs> and you'll get shunned basically. But <laughs> yeah, you know, they're like little they're tapes in the tape deck. You put them in and you have to rewind them and stuff and they have the songs on them. Yes. And God forbid the tape comes out and then you have to get a, like a pencil or something and twist, 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 twist. Yes. Blow on it. <clears throat> yes. From time to time. Side A and side B, don't get them confused. And you are really going to want to either rewind or fast forward all the way through because it sucks a big old dick putting it in at, in the middle of a song. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yep. And they were before CDs. So you had your Walkman, which played your cassette tapes. Sure. And then you had the portable CD player. Right. Is it called a Discman? Yeah. Yeah. I forget. What was your first cassette tape? Are you trying to make fun of me? I want to know. I think it was Shania Twain, whose bed have your boots been under? Well, that's a good one. Or any man of mine, and like I got that one too. Mine was Ace of Base. Oh, sure. It was tits. Amazing. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Also Tanya Tucker. But you know what? It wasn't Shania Twain because I had cassette tapes way before that. I had George Strait, Baby Blue. I had, oh, sure. what was that woman's name? Holly somebody? No idea. I don't remember. It was really old country and like, I can't even remember. Susie Boggess. Holly? Not Holly. Susie Boggess. I think I had one of her cassettes too. Susie Boggess was great. Yeah. And I used to listen to her. Like I would go out in the yard and just like wander around with my Walkman on and just sing at the top of my lungs. Mm -hmm. And I had some fantastic, I had The Power of Love by Celine Dion. It really just doesn't get any better than that. It really doesn't. Celine's a gift from God. Absolutely. Okay, let's keep going. Okay, so he's like, got to find some cassette tapes. Cannot drive without the music. I can't either, so I, I don't blame e him. Yeah, or podcast or whatever. But he's starting to make like some weird conversation. He's starting to make uh, Paul uncomfortable. Well, and it was said about him that he starts out always very friendly, very charismatic, like mm -hmm. super, super enjoyable to be around. And then the tides turn all of a sudden. Yeah, it's like the air kind of gets cold and he just starts to get, I don't know, just very like standoffish. And he, when they were having that like good conversation, he's asking him stuff like, are you traveling by yourself? Are you meeting anybody later tonight? Like asking questions of like, when is somebody going to notice you're missing basically? Right. And they talked to each other, you know, about family history. I guess they had kind of a long drive, but the man said his name was Bill, but he said that his family was from Yugoslavia. He talked about other things that later we're going to find out are actually true of his real identity. So it's one of those kind of moments where like, I was like, well, you dumb bitch. Like you can't think of a different backstory. Like... That's, this is your time to shine. Yeah, if you this want. is your character. Make, yeah. give him a backstory. Mm -hmm. He's not just you, but with a different name. Like, right. Idiot. A handsome man enters. <laughs> <laughs> so he starts, you know, he's kind of, and he, he said he was like starting to make like some really weird like racial comments and he was getting uncomfortable. He's trying to just keep telling himself, there's nothing wrong here. I'm just overreacting. So when Bill says, I've got to pull over to get these cassette tapes, Paul is like, okay. And then he looks down at the seat next to them and there's stacks of cassette tapes. And he's like, oh my God, this man is going to try and kill me. And then he's like, oh, hang on now. I've never hitchhiked before. Maybe 
this is just maybe he's got a cassette tape that he can't get to right now a very specific one or something you know he's like trying to make up like everything's fine everything's fine so maybe he, the aaron tippen cassette tape was just out of reach <laughs> i had that one too <laughs> <laughs> such a crush on him but i love every boy <laughs> <laughs> yeah Aaron Tippin, man. Mustache that just wouldn't quit. Would not quit. So he pulls over and Paul gets out to stretch his legs. And Bill kind of flips the fuck out about it. And he's like, what are you doing? Get back in the car. Get back in the car. And he's like, okay. I mean, like, God, I'm trying to stretch my legs. Like, whatever. So he gets back in the car and then he pulls a gun on him. And he's like, well, motherfuck, I knew this was going to happen. Fucking knew it. So... He pulls the gun on him, and normally this is when Bill would be in complete control, and Paul says, fuck it, I'm running, which I think is what you should do. Now, if I were in that situation, I know 100% for sure I would freeze, I would probably, I would be a fainting goat. I would fall (laughs) right over and black out and be like, did I die? What happened? (laughs) But just hearing the rest of them, you know, it's like, it's just so sad because all of the other people that this happened to that we know of, they met a horrible fate. So it's like your only chance is to try and run. Now, Bill starts shooting at him. He's Paul's running across the highway. He's trying to flag cars down. Nobody's stopping because they're like, yeah, I'm not going to pick up a crazy person. <laughs> like, you know, I'm going to I'm not going to put myself in danger. And I can understand being like, hey, I don't know what's happening. So I'm not going to stop. And finally, Paul is like, I'm going to stand in front of a car, and if I get hit by a car, I'd rather do that than whatever this guy's going to do to me. Yeah, Yeah, so he finally, like, gets in front of a car, and it's this woman driving with her kids, Joanne Barry. And she's like, at first I tell him, because she's telling me there's a guy with a gun, and I'm like, well, then you can't get in my fucking car. Like, I have my kids in the car. Absolutely not, sir. And he's like, you know, basically, please let me in. And so he gets in the car. And she said she she had like kind of pulled off the road and she starts to back up a little bit to get back onto the road. And she sees Bill running back over to his car, his four wheel drive vehicle. And he looks like he's hiding something, which is presumably the gun that he'd been shooting at Paul with. And he gets back in his car and he drives away. But Paul definitely had a brush with death. And Joanne, 100 percent saved his life yes i think because had bill gotten a hold of him that would have been the end of it this could also be i guess we'll get into it later but this could also be why you know how sometimes like when you hear the progression of attacks of serial killers against their quote-unquote better judgment sometimes they'll let somebody go like israel keys did that before and then after that he was like i never was gonna let somebody go again because he knew what a risk it was Maybe that experience was like, okay, well, I can't ever let anybody get out of the car again. I don't know. I don't think he ever had an intention of anything else. But Paul filed a police report and he gave the man's description to law enforcement and he gave a description of the car he was driving, a white Toyota Land Cruiser. But the way that they worded it in the documentary is that the police report was lost, but nothing ever came of it. So Paul goes back home. This is 1990. This happens. To Birmingham, right? Yeah. He goes back to England and that's it. You know, the police never contact him. He made his report. He did what he could. You know, he doesn't really, I don't think he follows up on it necessarily or anything like that. It's just super concerning that 
something like that could get lost if that's actually actually what happened. Yeah, like, did they mean they just sort of put it on a shelf, basically, you know, the proverbial shelf? <laughs> and like, yeah, well, whatever. Like, if- I would take something like that pretty seriously you would think so especially considering that the area that it happened in was very close to where all these other people went missing it, that's attempted murder yes but yeah i get for whatever reason the the way that they made it sound we could be misinterpreting this but the way that they made it sound was that the police weren't really all that worried about following up on it or it simply got lost and whoever took the report was like well i'm not gonna i'm not gonna follow up on that right so you know, hey, whatever happened to that attempted murder, Bill, Bob, Susan, you know, <laughs> right. whoever it is at the water cooler. And then Bill, Bob, or Susan is like, the fuck are you talking about? I've never even seen that report. Yeah. You know, but that never happened. Nope. No discussion. Moving on. So later, Paul's testimony would be the key to identifying the worst serial killer in Australia. But, you know, not now. Mm. At this point in the story, we have seven backpackers who've been reported missing around the same area. Seven. Seven. Crazy. Yeah. But no sign of them has ever been discovered, alive or otherwise, until September 19th, 1992, when a string of horrific discoveries begins in the Belanglo State Forest of Sydney, Australia. Two competitive runners who were training in the woods discovered the decomposing remains of a woman on a rock ledge in the area of Belanglo State Forest known as Executioner's Drop. Oh, my God. Who fucking named that? That's what I want to know. Right? Like, this area is called your worst fucking nightmare. Exactly. Like, could you not have called the OPI nail polish people and been like, (laughs) give me a cute name, like Cajun Shrimp or whatever? (laughs) I don't know if you're going to want to go with Cajun Shrimp, but I see where you're... Something to that effect. Sure. We want it to be like... Like bubble bath. Yeah. (laughs) Airy. Like, it's... You're happy here. Like, um, you know, not your mom's state park or I don't know. (laughs) You need to be the one who's naming these places. I'm just throwing out options. Sure. Executioner's drop? A little heavy, guys. Yeah, it is a little heavy. I mean, it's it's probably got, like, a very rich history or something, but it just sounds oh, fucking horrible, especially considering what happened there. But maybe it's accurate, you know what I mean? Like, maybe if you you take one step too far, dead. Mm, mm. I don't know. Maybe it lives True. up to it. Yeah, well, it does now. Right. The woman was identified as Joanne Walters. Joanne had been gagged and viciously stabbed over 21 times in the back and 14 times in the chest. Nine of the stab wounds in her back would have left her paralyzed, and her spine was severed due to the stab wounds. Talk about overkill. Yes, overkill is like, that could very well be the name of the documentary, I feel like. Like, yeah. that's that was his MO, complete overkill of people he did not know none of these people pissed him off you know right it's i mean but obviously there was a lot of rage there yeah when law enforcement arrived and began investigating the scene they found the body of caroline clark a short distance away caroline had been shot in the head 10 times leading the investigators to believe that she'd been used for target practice oh my god they believed that her killer shot her in the head repositioned himself in his gun and shot her again repeating that process over and over, knowing that she'd been killed instantly by the first shot. What the fuck? Yeah. She was also stabbed in the back as she lay in the forest. So this is where they called, they talked about the Sloppy Joe in the documentary because they said he covered her head with um, the Sloppy Joe. Right. Like, blindfolded her with it. Yes. And then he 
started to shoot her. And during this time, her friend Joanne is watching it. Yeah, she's like tied up and she's got a I don't know. I mean, they're they're reenacting what they think happened because he never um confessed to any of it, but she's maybe blindfolded like she can hear it though. Yeah, she can hear it. And then after that, he comes over to her. So they think that Caroline would have been first. And then Joanne was stabbed, which rendered her paralyzed. And then she was further attacked after that. Just absolutely horrific stuff. And they're they're talking to both of their parents. And it was so sad because Joanne's parents, her dad talked mostly. And Caroline's parents, the mom talked, the mom more. talked more. But as Joanne's dad is retelling any bit of the story, you see the mom just kind of looking down the whole time. And when they start talking about this part and then being notified that their daughter had been found, she's still just like breaking down and catching herself, like just trying not to burst into tears. And I was just like, so, so fucking sad. Like you could, I could see it the moment that they first showed them on camera. As he started talking, I was like, she's about to lose it. And at that point in time, it had been like, what, 15 years since it had happened. I mean, that that's pain that's never going to go away. But it's just, I don't know. It's just so sad. And to think that a person would do this to people that he, I mean, you sh- obviously you should never do that to anybody, but he didn't know them. Like there was nothing that they'd done to like, in his mind even, to wrong him or anything. It's just like he just derived pleasure from it. Yeah, this will be fun. This will be enjoyable for me. This is what I want to do with my Saturday or whatever. And in some of the cases, which we'll get further into with the details, I'm sure, but he didn't take their money. He did not no. take their belongings. I mean, they, he took some belongings, yeah. but or kept belongings, I but guess. It but it wasn't a robbery. It's not like he was doing it to, for financial gain. Yeah, to get by or anything like no. that. He's just doing it. Yeah. Because he wants to. And that's terrifying. I mean, it always is terrifying when anybody does anything that would cause someone physical harm or harm in any way, but that that's just scary cuz he's it's just like a hobby for him. Exactly. On October 5th, 1993, skeletal remains were discovered a little over a half mile from where the bodies of Joanne Walters and Caroline Clark had been found. James Gibson's body was discovered in the fetal position with his shoes on near a fallen log, and Deborah Everest's scattered remains were located at the bottom of a nearby tree. James had been stabbed eight times with one of the gashes severing his spine, which would have paralyzed him, and the other stab wounds in his chest and back puncturing his heart and lungs. Deborah had been brutally beaten to the point that she had two skull fractures and a broken jaw. There were knife marks observed on the forehead of her skull, and she'd also been stabbed in the back. On November 1st, 1993, the body of Simone Schmidl was found on Miner's Despair Trail in Belanglo Forest, approximately three miles away from where the others had been discovered. Miner's Despair? This must have been a very sad forest. I know. It's like this area is what I imagined from the other guys will ferrell's singing group they're singing about this yes they this are forest here and all their fathers were hanged and the children all got pink eyed while their fairy books were burned. yeah 
Yeah. And then they all got pink eye. (laughs) (laughs) It's just tough stuff. It is. Simone's murder was especially violent. A stab wound had severed her spine, which would have rendered her paralyzed and unable to escape for the duration of her attack. She was stabbed six more times, her lungs and heart punctured by stab wounds. Then she was laid face down in the forest, covered with leaves and branches. At some point during her murder, her killer made a fire encircled by a ring of stones. Simone's elastic, compactomat brand headband that Jeanette had seen her wearing when they said goodbye had been wrapped around her skull and she'd been gagged. Simone's mother heard the horrible news on the radio before police had contacted her to inform her they'd found her daughter's remains. Can you fucking believe that? It's, that is so, so sad. (sighs) Yeah, could you imagine just like making yourself some fucking toast or whatever and then you turn on the news and that's what you hear? Like, are you fucking kidding me? You could not have called me before everybody knew before I did. Like, yeah, Mm -hmm. that's awful. That is awful. Days later on November 4th, the bodies of Gabor Nigabauer and Anya Habshid were found a couple of hundred feet from each other and a little over a half mile from where Schmidl's body was located. Anya had been decapitated and her head was never found. Like, what the fuck? I just don't, I just don't understand. Gabor, he used a machete to do that, correct, Amundo? Something like that. Yeah. yeah. He just like, in the in the documentary, they have the actor and the actors that play the victims like reenact all of these scenes. And it's just to, to think about the, just the brutality of everything. Like, because they said he had her like lean forward. And I thought they were going to say then he shot her like he did with Caroline. And then they said he raised up this like machete-like weapon or whatever and just started hacking her Yes. Like, and the way it made it sound, it did not come off in the first blow. Like, I hope to God that the first blow killed her. Yes. Yeah. And I also hope to God that none of the families of the victims have ever seen this documentary because right. it could not. It's too, yeah. It's, it's too real. It's too real. Yeah. I mean, it's well done, but yeah, definitely for a family member. I don't think that that's too real. Yeah. Yeah. It's inappropriate. Gabor had been gagged and shot in the head six times. I don't understand that. Like, what's i just don't understand it just seems like he was so angry at these people but like what did they do exactly like they're they didn't do anything wrong the only thing that they did was trust somebody who they believed had no other reason to believe that he was anything other than a nice person offering them a ride well yeah and he definitely kept up that charade until he didn't yeah exactly until he got them to where they were in a desolate place enough and he could pull his gun out Mm -hmm. and then he's in total control and these are people who are believing him because he's in the reenactments he's saying we're just gonna play a game i'm just gonna rob you um uh, if you follow what i tell you i'll let you go stuff like that so weird though too because once he started that like pulled the gun out and they freaked the fuck out, which is what you would do. He's like, calm down, calm down, calm down. Yeah. Cause like, okay, well, what are you expecting? Yeah, here? exactly. Like, you're going to pull a gun out and I'm going to be like, okay, now what? I like, like your gun. Yeah. Cool gun. Thanks right? for showing me. Yeah. yeah. Of course they're going to freak out. Yeah. He's like, excuse me while I whip this out. They're going to have a natural reaction. Yeah. He's, I just hate him. Oh, yeah. 
So near their bodies, they found a device that he'd used to restrain them, but they also found, I don't remember how many feet they said from Gabor's body, his, um, what are those things called? You like, I feel like the Fromer's Guide or whatever would tell you to have this. It's like wraps around the inside of your clothes. It's like a holster, but for your like money and your passport and stuff like that. I know what you're talking about, but yeah, I don't to know keep the term it on for you. It. Um, I can't remember the name of it. I go with the fanny pack. Yeah, but you in, can in actual real life. But yeah. you can buy something that's yeah. Yeah, it's like goes. It's a know. safer supposed to be a safer way to travel. Well, much safer. Anybody could just grab a fanny pack right off of you, right off of your ass. It would come off. <laughs> right off of my fanny. Exactly. Um. <laughs> So they found that with his money, passport, all that kind of stuff in it, not far from the body. But then they also found boxes of ammunition. I mean, like, ding, 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 you dumb bitch. Yeah, what a dumb idiot. They have serial numbers on that shit, dude. Like, Mm -hmm. whatever. They call them batch numbers. I just love hearing or watching documentaries from that are based out of different countries to see just the different terms that everybody uses. It makes me happy. Yeah, it is interesting. So after they start finding remains they of course launch a pretty wide investigation it's it's upsetting to me that that's what it took to launch this investigation and poor little paul onions is like oh yeah that's the guy that almost killed me and i tried to tell you guys had they followed up on that these let's see paul was in 1990 yes gabor and anya Mm-hmm. Deborah and James, Deborah Everest and James Gibson were in 89. So this would have, that would have been after, but everybody else was after Paul. Mm-hmm. So that would be five people that would still be alive mm-hmm. had they followed up on that. It is. It's very sad. I don't want ever to make any episode that we ever do like bashing police work, yeah. but sometimes it- they drop the ball and sometimes that results in yeah like that's unnecessary a murders. that's a big fucking deal that he attempted to kill somebody. him yeah, yeah and that he's shooting at him as he ran away like clearly he didn't care if he lived he wanted to make sure he didn't get caught he was gonna avoid that at all costs so yeah that that's a dangerous person and that person's still out there right and if they had launched an investigation and found ivan then they probably would have found joanne and i mean um Deborah. Excuse me, Deborah. Yeah. And James. And James's personal effects because he kept some things. So it's yep, like, you know. Exactly. So upon completion of the forensic examination, it was determined that all four bodies. So initially they had linked together, like after they found the first four, which would have been Joanne and Caroline and James and Deborah's bodies. It was determined that all four bodies found had likely been murdered by the same person. They all had numerous stab wounds covering the body. Some stab wounds had severed the spine. And a task force was formed called Task Force Air to further investigate the four murders and set up a large reward over $200,000 for information leading to the arrest of the perpetrator. NSW Police Assistant Commissioner Clive Small led the special task force. Okay, Clive Small. There are so many times in this documentary that he's like, I wasn't ready to arrest yet. I'm like, what's going to get you ready there? Yeah, like, what else do you need? So, I mean, I get it. He's making his case. He's trying to make sure that he doesn't miss anything, you know, that he's got everything so he can secure a conviction. Because you got to be like Aerosmith. You don't want to miss a thing. And you also can't just go citizens arrest somebody's ass. 
No, not as much as that would be fun. Oh, for sure. I would arrest you now. Sure. Yeah. My hands would be tied. Yes, they would. On November 9th, 1993, the task force set up a hotline for tips after realizing they needed the public's help if they were ever going to solve the case. Calls immediately began flooding in with five over 5,000 calls in just the first day of the hotline's operation. Eek. To manage the overload of information, 1.5 million pieces of information to be exact, the task force obtained new software technology to help them sort all of the information in an organized manner while finding similarities in the information to group together, making sure nothing was overlooked. Because I'm sure before that they would have just had to save everything on a floppy disk and just file them that way, correct? I don't know. If that, or just paper. Right. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Only two calls from the over 5,000 proved to be vital information. One woman called in a tip stating that she knew a man named Ivan Malat that lived near the Belanglo State Forest and owned multiple guns. The second call provided the evidence the investigators needed to pin their suspicions on Ivan. A woman called to report that she witnessed something she thought may have been relevant in 1990. She'd pulled over on the busy highway to pick up a man that was fleeing from what had appeared to be a struggle with another man. She recounted how panicked he was and how she brought him to a police station to make the report. The man was Paul Onions, an eyewitness that had been able to avoid his own attack. After Paul called the investigators and recounted the story, the task force flew Paul in and showed him a lineup of pictures. And they showed him some videos, too, of of all men with mustaches. With mustaches. Yeah, that's exactly how they said it. I love it. Yeah, it's cool. And he did have, like, that big handlebar mustache. Mustache, yes. You were like, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. (laughs) I do love a handlebar mustache. I really enjoy Kurt Russell's. Oh, great mustache. Sam Elliott's. Like, there's so many good mustaches in the world. But this guy's can go... Fuck off. Fuck right off. Yeah. Yeah. So after he looked through the videos and all the pictures, he named the same person both times he went through everything. I don't understand. I can only imagine what Paul's little heart was going through in this moment where he's like, I fucking tried to tell you guys. Exactly. Like, hello, this guy fucking tried to kill me. You think it was a one and done thing? Like, oh, it didn't work. I guess I'll quit. Like, Right. Exactly. I gave it a shot. It didn't go well. Yeah. Move on. Yeah. What the fuck? Paul identified Ivan Milat, guess who, as the man who'd introduced himself to him as Bill all those years ago. It turned out that Bill was the name of another of Ivan's brothers that Ivan frequently used as an alias. There were 10 brothers, 10 boys in the family. Yeah. There were 14 children. Yeah, Bill was one of them. Again, it's like, use a name. (laughs) I mean, I know that the names of your brothers takes up like 90% of like all the big names book in the of world. baby names, but <laughs> like pick one other one. Like, yeah. Come on, you dumb bitch. So he had purchased cars using that name and had worked under that name before. With this information, the task force had enough evidence to at least charge Ivan with Paul's attack and confirm their suspicions that Ivan was a viable suspect for the murders. At least he didn't say, instead of him being Ivan Malat, at least he didn't say he was Bill Malat. He changed the last name. No, I think they were saying he used his brother's name to work and buy cars. He was just like, yeah, I'm Bill Malat. Why? (laughs) That's so dumb. The only time that I've ever used your name to do anything was one time when I forgot my ID at home and I wanted to... A margarita? A margarita, yeah. Yeah, and we just... 
I just handed you my ID under the table because I wanted a margarita too. And it, I mean. And the guy was like, I don't know about this. me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He questioned it for a second and then he was like, oh, I don't give a fuck. Right. Really. I mean, yeah. it's a margarita. Yeah. <laughs> You're probably 21. I don't care. Right. So other evidence included information of some rumors that a man named Paul Miller had been bragging to his coworkers about the murders. Paul Miller ended up being an alias for Richard Millat, Ivan's brother. Yet another brother, Alex Millat, informed detectives that in April 1992, he'd seen two vehicles turning into the Belanglo Forest. He said that the vehicles contained multiple men armed with guns and two women who were gagged and acting like they were distressed. But Alex didn't feel like he needed to report the incident because he thought it was just some young blokes taking the girls into the forest to have a good time. Gagged and bound? Yeah. Yeah, because that's normal. Yeah. I mean, that that just sounds like a Saturday night for me. I think that if somebody tells you that and they're like, look, I mean, they were definitely restrained, handcuffed. They were screaming. They were crying. I thought they were just going to take them into the forest and I don't know, rape them. That wasn't a big deal to me. Boom, arrested. You're under investigation. Yes. This is not okay with me. Mm-mm. If you think this is normal activity, we need to have a talk. Exactly. Like, what the fuck? That's so wrong and so yeah. weird. And so they're like, well, thanks for the information, sir. Going about your day, right. basically. Yes. That um, doesn't mean anything to us. Yeah. Investigators were suspicious of his story because of the fact that he was able to recall such a great amount of detail from only passing the vehicles. So he had said he'd been riding in a car with his friend who was driving. And as they're riding in the car, he sees these people pass by going out to the forest to what to have what he believed was just a good time. Um, but he recalled, like, all this great detail. And so then when they go and ask his friend who'd been driving the car, his friend is like, what? No, that never happened. And if it did, I didn't see it. So the police are like, okay, well, if that had happened, don't you think you would have turned to your friend and been like, holy shit, did you see those two guys who were armed driving women who were bound and gagged and crying and whatever? Like, nothing. It was like he saw it and thought to himself, that's normal. Yeah. And went on and his friend didn't see it at all. Hmm. But he saw a lot of details. So cops were like, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, right. Every time Terrell and I are in the car together and I see something, I'm always like, hey, did you see that? And she's always like, no, because she apparently drives with her eyes fucking closed. I don't know. (laughs) I'm scared for you. I don't see anything. I really don't know. My therapist says it's because I'm not present in the moment. (sighs) What are you doing? I'm worrying about the future. Oh. Yeah. You need to... Who was it? Lifehouse or the call... Hanging by a moment? Lifehouse. Lifehouse. Yeah, that's what you need to be doing. I guess. But all I'm doing is like, oh my God, what if I forget to do this? Or do I have enough time to do that? Or, you know, what about when my kids graduate? Are they going to get in a wreck when they get their driver's license? Your poor tummy. I bet you got all kinds of ulcers in there. You probably, probably. got a lot of anxious... What if I ride on a roller coaster and my head gets chopped off? When are you going to a theme park? Never again because of all the stories I've heard. Oh, God. Wow. Obviously. You make me sad. <laughs> On May 22nd, 1994, a team of police... Mm-mm, a team of 50 police officers raided Ivan Malat's home where they charged him with the attempted murder of Paul Onions. They began searching through the house and discovered numerous firearms, including one that matched the ballistics of the murders. And that was like in a hole in his wall. <laughs> he really tried to hide that one. Hundreds of possessions that had belonged to the missing backpackers, including Simone's water bottle that she had marked with her nickname, Simmy, 
and he had scratched that name off and under what was it infrared infrared light light. you could could see it it still Mm -hmm. under there foreign currency clothing a tent with a hole in it patched by an address label but then when you because they interviewed his brother and his brother's like that 100 percent was never theirs yeah because he had given it didn't give it to his brother or something yeah his brother's like look i don't know where it came from but it definitely wasn't theirs to begin with okay um ivan bought it or something It, it never was that other person's and it's like we know for a fucking fact that it wasn't even joanne or caroline's they got it from a guy the day that they left and it so happens to have the exact same characteristics like the hole in it with the label an address label that's not how you'd normally patch a tent i feel like but it's what he had available so it's very specific right sleeping bags uh camping equipment cameras they also found a picture of i believe it was caroline's her like jumper hoodie yeah. thing. And it was a brand that is only sold in, in the UK. Yeah, in the UK. It was never sold in Australia. And he gave it to his girlfriend. Yes, he did. And they have a picture of her wearing it. And actually I thought the girlfriend kind of looked like her. They I mean they both had dark they long dark hair. They looked they had similarities for very sure. Similar. Yes. Um eerie. Yeah. His mother's home and five of his brother's homes were also searched, and more items of the victims and firearms and ammunition were found in those homes as well. On May 23, 1994, Ivan appeared in court for the charges of the attack on Paul Onions, but he did not enter a plea at that time. On May 31, 1994, Ivan was formally arrested and charged with the murders of the seven backpackers. And, like, watching him be escorted into the courtroom or whatever he's got this fucking shit-eating grin on his face he had that shit-eating grin on his face a lot all the time yeah and just like every time i saw him i was just like you motherfucker. i I was just so angered by the look of him my blood would have been boiling like Yeah. yeah we'll talk in the next episode about his vague interaction with some of the family members during trial and holy shit Mm -mm. yeah but we will also discuss Ivan Milat's backstory, his background. Um, like I said, we'll talk about the trial and other cases that have been linked to him but have never been formally closed. So we've got a lot to go over in the second part. Um, if you are not a Patreon subscriber, ain't no thing. Get it next week. But if you are, you'll get it right now, this very moment. Yep. Get bada ready. Bing, bada boom. Here Stay it is right now. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you. Never. We never can get it smooth outro. It's never going to happen for us. So it's awkward. just not in the cards for us. But we'll catch you on the flip flop and we'll see you later. Bye. Yeah, bye. <laughs>